0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Thank you guys from the student ministry. Uh, There was one person up here that wasn't from the student ministry. I don't know if you noticed that. Allison, you fit right in. No one even noticed that you weren't in the student ministry. She was like, I don't know how I got into this. I was like, You're still young and hip. You can do this. And, uh, but thank y'all for blessing us and leading us to worship the Lord. Uh, if you're a guest here, then you you may not uh, have experienced this before. But we worked through books of the Bible verse by verse. And um, this morning, I immediately when the service was over, I went outside and stood outside. And people were like, What's wrong? I was like, I was burning up. I said I don't know if it was the fact that I was wearing a sweater. I don't know what the temperature set was set to, or if it's because I'm preaching on sexual purity. But one of those things made me very, very hot, and I was like, "Whoo!" And so uh, today we are going to cover that subject, and that's because when you work through the Bible, which we believe is the best thing for the church, which is to study the Bible, and that is God's word for us. Even if it's uncomfortable at times, it is God's way of blessing us and conforming us into His image, and uh, we think it's the happiest way to live, but more importantly, it's the way that we glorify God as a church. Uh, Augustine had a saying. I want to see how this saying strikes you. His saying was this, love God and do what you want. How does that strike you? Some of you are like, man, that's not going to turn out too good, right? Well, the reason that scares us is because we know our own tendencies. We know human nature is to take a word like that and twist it and turn it into a license to sin. His uh, his point was that if you love God truly, you will live for God. And then instead of living by a set of rules, you're living out in your freedom. There's freedom in living a life that is one that is dedicated towards loving God. But what we tend to do is take those phrases and twist them and look for an excuse to give ourselves a license to sin or to give us a license for licentious behavior. That's where that phrase comes from, giving ourselves a license to sin. That's what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians. Turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're covering verses 12 through 20 today. And in chapter 6, verse 12 through 20, there, uh, Paul is dealing with a couple of phrases that, that apparently became slogans in the church. And I think th- that it was something that Paul said, and then they took his phrases and they twisted it and are making it into a license to sin. Uh, one of those phrases is, all things are, lo- are lawful in Christ. All things are lawful. And so they turned it into phrases where he, Paul quotes them, all things are lawful for me. And then he rebuts and says, but not all things are helpful uh, but then we see he says, "All things are lawful for me, but I would not be enslaved by anything." So Paul is addressing these slogans that the church are using. Likely he said, "If we'll see later as we go through Corinthians when they were wrestling with this idea of can is it okay to eat food sacrificed to idols." And he says, all things are lawful in Christ. And then he's going to say things like, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. His point about that was that the food that was sacrificed to idols, the idols aren't real. And so it's okay. In Christ, you're free from the dietary laws. You're free from these kind of things. Just... Don't worry about it. You're fine. Well, apparently they in Corinth took these teachings and said, all things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for the food. And so we're just going to live like devils. We're going to live sinful, licentious lifestyles because what I do in the body doesn't matter. You see where I'm going? You see the problem that Paul is addressing? They're turning his phrases, they're twisting his teaching, and turning it into a license to sexual immorality, as if what we did in the body doesn't matter. They were likely saying, look, God is all about the spirit. There was a dualism in Greek thinking that was the body is minimized. Don't worry about the body. God is all about the spirit. There's this contrast between body and spirit. And Paul's saying that's not true at all. That's not how we should think. What we're going to see today is Paul's going to say the body matters greatly to God. But sexual immorality comes from the word pornea, where we get the word pornography. It was clearly a problem in their culture. Paul is dealing with it all over the book of 1 Corinthians. A few weeks ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians 5.1, he said this. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So he's saying this is a problem. Then we saw last week when we looked at chapter 6, verse 9, he listed this list of, of pornea. He said, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So he's saying whether it's heterosexuality or homosexuality, Sexual immorality is a problem in the church, and we can't tolerate allowing the church to just live like the culture because the church is supposed to be an alternative. The church is supposed to be providing a different context, a different place where people can come in and see what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. I mean, we're not going to do that perfect, but that should be our aim is to provide the experience of What is it like to live in the kingdom of God, a taste of the kingdom of God? Today, he's going to deal with the issue even more. In verse 13, he's going to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And in verse 15 and 16, he mentions going to prostitutes specifically. And then in verse 18, he says, so the imperative, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, remember when we set up this study of 1 Corinthians, we saw that what was going on in the culture of Corinth was that when the sun came down, the prostitutes descended upon from the mountains down into the city, and they went all over the city. And they did it in some perverted name of cult prostitutes and perverted name of worship. And so the culture had perverted God's beautiful design for, for sexual relationship inside of a marriage that we're going to look at. And the church adopted that as they became believers and, community, and, and covenanted together as a community of faith, they were practicing the same sinful behavior. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works in the church. We've got to deal with this. Do we think that we have this? Is this like an, an element, uh, uh, issue that you say, well, this isn't very relevant for our society? No, I mean, when we look at these things, we can say, man, Corinth sounds a lot like the culture that we live in. Sexual immorality is a massive problem in our culture as well. According to FamilySafe.com, Research shows that 47% of Christians surveyed said that pornography is a major problem in the home. 47% of Christians said that. 40 million US adults regularly visit porn sites. Studies suggest that 30 to 40%, 30 to 40% of unmarried relationships and 18 to 20% of marriages see at least one incident of sexual infidelity. So if you put those percentages together, we were at a conference as a staff this week, and there was a man sharing statistics about another topic, but he really drove it home by saying, uh, that means one out of this many, and so as that means stand up, and then he had sit down, and we saw just, if I did that right now, then the odds are, the percentages are, that we would see how drastically relevant this is to the church, 40%, 47%, half the church, if I said this half stand up, pornography has probably affected this many in the church, and it's a a major problem in the home. So Paul's point today is we've got to deal with these issues, though they make us uncomfortable, and though I may make we want to run outside and get a little air, it's something we got to deal with. So Lord, we ask that you'll help us deal with this this morning. That we will deal with it faithfully according to your Scripture. That you will give us the the Spirit's power. That you will convict us in our heart of the need to be faithful and that you will give us the motivation and the power and the courage to to be faithful in, our, in, in the area of sexual relationships in our life. And we want to do this for your glory. It's in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Okay, briefly, Paul is going to give us three gospel realities, three gospel truths that actually will give us help in this area. Notice the the, the tagline under our screen, uh, 1 Corinthians, is seeing every part of life through the gospel. And there's a great video, gospelproject.com, that you can click on and watch how the gospel is applied to all these issues going on in the church. So every aspect of problems in the church are addressed by the gospel. Today we're going to see three gospel realities that help us think through and glorify God in our bodies in this area of our lives the first gospel reality is our resurrection in response to their twisting paul's teaching saying all things are lawful the stomachs for the body the, the food is for stomach and stomach is for food paul states very clearly in the second part of verse 13 the body is not meant for sexual immorality But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And then he mentions the resurrection. God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. So what what does the resurrection have to do with this struggle? What, he, what Paul is saying is, when you are in Christ by faith, united with Christ by faith, that's the gospel message, that we are united with Christ by faith. He says, when Christ was resurrected from the grave, when God rose Jesus from the grave, he didn't raise a spirit. He rose the body of Christ. And the Bible teaches that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee that Our bodies, believers in Christ, our bodies will be resurrected from the grave as well. So what's your point, Paul? Paul's point is, so what you do in the body matters. The body matters to God. Christianity is not just a spiritual experience. It's not just a spiritual battle. It is a battle that is played out through the bodies, The body is to be for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That phrase is a parallel phrase to the slogan that they were saying, food is for the stomach, and stomachs for the food. Paul says the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. They were downplaying the body, twisting his teaching, and downplaying the body, and saying, what we do in the body doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, what you do in the body matters greatly. Because your body is for the Lord. And good news, the Lord is for your body. So your body is to be used to glorify the Lord. And God, the Lord, is for helping you accomplish that, giving you what you need to glorify the Lord with your body. So he says our bodies were created by God. They are for God. And that's really his main point through all these points. When we think about the creation account, we see all through Scripture's evidence of this. When we think about creation, God made bodies as a key part of imaging forth his glory. Remember, he says, these are created in my image. And the very focus of those creation texts in Genesis 1 and 2 are the body. He made it from the dust, he molded them into bodies, and then he took one out of the body. He took Eve's body and made it from the body of Adam. And they are to be fruitful and multiply and live in relational connection to each other and to God and to subdue the earth with their bodies. All of this is profoundly important into this aspect of how we bring glory to God. It's very much attached to what we do in our bodies There's there's no dualism in Christianity. The, the, The Greek thought was there was a dualistic competition between body and soul. And they would downplay the body. And he's saying, no, the body is massively important to what God says, how I want you to glorify me. The body is so important that Jesus took on a body. When God said, I'm going to come down and save humanity He didn't come as an angel. He didn't come as as some spirit being. He came in a body. And he gave his body on the cross. His body was pierced for our transgressions. And then when he was buried, he was physically buried. When he rose from the grave, it was a bodily resurrection. The scripture says that makes a big deal about this. Paul's going to say his body was resurrected, not just his spirit or his soul. And so the body is important. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the father, he ascended in bodily form. He sits at the right hand of the father on the throne in his body, his resurrected new body. And so the Lord makes a big deal about our bodies. And when Christ rose from the grave, when Christ returns, he's gonna come return in bodily form. And then the bodies of all the saints will be resurrected from the grave and we will be reunited with our bodies. We'll have new bodies to live eternally and we will reign on a physical earth, a new earth and the new heavens. We will reign in our physical resurrected bodies. I don't think we think that way very often. I think we tend to think kind of in this spiritual realm, which is very real as well. But what we see is we have bodies and what we do with our bodies is very important. We need to serve the Lord with our bodies. We need to glorify God with our bodies. We need to understand that our bodies are to be used to glorify him, especially in the area of physical union and relationships. So what they were doing was twisting the teaching. I wonder how often we twist the teachings of the Lord to justify our living-like culture. I can tell you I see it oftentimes in counseling sessions when someone is really wrestling and struggling and, and they want to justify some sin in their life. Oftentimes, they will find a scripture, cling to that scripture, and say, the Bible tells me that God is a God of love. And doesn't God want me to be happy Doesn't God want me to be with a, a, doesn't God, a woman might say, a, a spouse might say, doesn't God want me to be happy and in a loving relationship? Does he really expect me to go the rest of my life in an unhappy marriage? And this man has loved me so well, unlike my husband. Or a man might say, you know, the Bible clearly states that she should not withhold herself from me. As my spouse, and she is, and so I feel completely freed to and justified to commit these other types of of sexual sins, whether it be pornography or a physical adultery relationship, or someone outside of marriage, not married yet, committing fornication, saying, you know, God made me this way; He gave me these desires, and so we take scriptures. All those things are true that God made us this way. God wants us to be happy in him and God loves us, but we can't twist the scriptures like they were doing in Corinth to justify desires of our heart that are contrary to the will of God. And so that's at least something we need to think about. Am I doing that? And we shouldn't do that because, number one, God expects us to glorify him and his will is the way we glorify him. But number two, we have the greatest life, the greatest joy, the happiest existence is in God's will. So when we think we'll be happier, it's a lie from Satan. To disobey God will not make us happier. So he points to the resurrection to say how you live in the body matters. Secondly, and this is the point that just blows me away. He goes from our, our resurrection to our union. He goes from our resurrection in Christ, a reality that we share if we are trusting Christ our bodily resurrection, to our union in Christ. Think about these words carefully. If you've heard these verses, don't gloss over them. Think about what Paul is saying. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ's body? This is not some analogy of the church this is a profound union with Christ that says that your body is a member of Christ. Wait, are you sure you're talking bodily? Shall I then take the members of Christ of Christ's body and make them members of a prostitute's or a prostitute or a prostitute's body? never exclamation mark. Do you see what Paul is saying? He is saying the union with Christ is so profound that what you do with your body, you are subjecting Christ to that behavior. Wow. And we would say, Subject Christ to a prostitute. Never. I would never do that. I mean, this is what Paul's teaching. I never will forget the first time this hit me. Uh, I was on staff at another church, and we went to a, a purity conference in Southwestern Seminary, and the speaker camped out on this verse and said this very thing. And I thought, surely he's twisting Scripture. And he's not. This is what Paul is saying. You can see it for yourself. It's very plain English that surely you understand. Do you not know that your union with Christ makes your body a member of Christ's body? And so if you are in union with a prostitute, then you are subjecting Christ to be in union with a prostitute. You say, I never would go to a prostitute. Okay, What we need to understand is when you are all alone and nobody's watching, everyone's gone, and you think you're alone, Paul's not just saying Jesus is in the house watching you. Paul is saying Jesus is in you looking through your eyes. Paul is saying that what you do with your body whether it's as a single person, as a married person, heterosexual or homosexual, what you do with your body, you are subjecting Christ to that. And the scripture says that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve Jesus Imagine the grieving that Jesus is going through as he is subjected to unholy behavior. That's what Paul is saying. Or do you not know these things, he says, as he continues in verse 16? Or do you not know that maybe you misunderstood your union with Christ? Paul says, or maybe you just misunderstand the physical union. Or do you not know That he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he goes to Genesis. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But then back to the union with Christ. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So it's like, are you kidding me? Do you not know that when you put your faith in Christ and you say, oh, thank you for forgiving me of my sins, that the spirit of God dwells in you and you become one with Jesus Christ? And so that what you do with someone else, and if you physically do that, you are becoming one with them, but you are one with Christ. And so if you're one with Christ and you become one with them, then you are making them one with Christ. Wayne Grudem surveys the whole Bible on the subject of the phrase in Christ, this idea of the union with Christ. It is so complete and so comprehensive and so profound. He says number one, we are in Christ. Number two, Christ is in us. And number three, we are like Christ. And number four, we are with Christ. How many ways can you say it? All throughout the scriptures. You are in Christ, Christ is in you. You are like Christ, Christ is with you in whatever you think, in whatever you look at, in whatever you do with your body. Wow. That has been the greatest tool in my life to fight for faithfulness. Yeah, it hurts, it grieves, it causes us to grieve our sin that we know, but let, let's keep going and go beyond that and know repentance is the goal here. That this should be a wonderful weapon in your arsenal that Christ is not just out there looking at me, Christ is in here looking through my eyes and living through me. So God, help me be faithful in this moment of temptation. The, the union with Christ is the heart of the gospel. It's so comprehensive and so complete that the, the Bible says that whatever Christ did, God counted it as if you did it. How are you righteous in Christ if you're in Christ? How are you righteous? How are you given credit for obeying the commands of Scripture? I, I would, this not rhetorical. How? How are you... Through Christ's obedience. So when Jesus obeyed, when Jesus was tempted and did not compromise his holiness, every single time he physically obeyed, God, because our union is so complete and so comprehensive and so profound, God says, You obeyed. You got credit. When Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that you died with him on the cross. Physically your old self died and was buried. We 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 illustrate this in the baptism. You were buried with Christ and then the resurrection is illustrated coming up from the cleansing of the water illustration and it says you were raised to walk in the newness of life when Christ was crucified your old self was crucified when Christ was buried in the tomb you're buried in the tomb with him when Christ rose from the grave you were resurrected from the grave when Christ ascended to the right hand of the father you were ascended to the right hand of the father when Christ returns in bodily form all of those souls that have died the the bodies are buried they will be resurrected from the grave united with their souls to live in physical body for an eternity reigning over a physical new earth with new heavens. The body is very important to God. And the union with Christ, the reason that you are are declared righteous, the reason that you have been given credit for his righteousness is because there is such a profound union with Christ that what he did, we got credit for it. But the flip side of that is that what you do, Christ is in you, with you, like you, and you are in him. So that should be a profound tool to fight temptation, to sin. And then verse 15. So, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or shall I take the members of Christ and participate in any form of pornea? Absolutely not. Never. I think that attitude will help you in the battle. Paul finally gives an imperative command in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. In light of this fact that you were resurrected bodily, what you do matters in the body. In light of your union, this profound intimate union with Christ, flee from sexual... Don't walk, run. Don't play around, flee. Be radical in your fight against sexual immorality. There's places in the scripture that uses hyperbole to say, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Fight this with everything you got. It don't care if you say, I gotta have a cell phone. If it's leading you to sin, get rid of it. I don't care if you have to have a computer. Give your wife the password. Put it in the main room of the house. Whatever it takes, get radical. Flee from pornea. God cares about what you do with your body. And then he seems to connect it to the the sin and how it affects the church. He goes on, he says in verse 18, every other sin. Now this is a very challenging passage. The the singular and pronoun, the singular and plural of are going back and forth, but I think what he's doing is saying that you, what you do in your personal body affects the corporate, plural, singular body, but what each one of you does affects that body, the church. Let me just read it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? The other time Paul talked about the body being a temple, the plural and the singular was referring to the singular body. The Spirit of God dwells among us when we gather together like he did in the original temple Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. I think what Paul is saying is that when you individually have sexual immorality in your own body, it affects the body where Christ dwells. So it's another motivation not to compromise. The church is the covenant people of God. We are to be different. We are to display the glory of God. And that kind of behavior totally makes it a fraud. And it must be something that we don't just embrace. We've got to fight it together. That's why we're here, to help each other, fight those temptations, fight those sinful desires, and do it all to the glory of God. So when you think it's not a big deal, you're wrong. It's a big deal. When you justify sin, twisting words, it's not acceptable. It's a huge deal. Not only is Jesus watching, but Jesus is looking through your eyes with you. And he is participating with your body in whatever you do. And it is meant to be for the Lord. So our resurrection should help us in this fight. Our union, profound union with Christ should help us with this fight. And finally, our purchase or our redemption, our purchase should help us in the fight. That's where he goes in the second part of verse 19. He says, you're not your own. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. This is the idea of redemption. This comes from the idea of when someone couldn't pay a debt, they were only, only left with one option. Can I work off my debt? I borrowed so much money from you that I, have, I can't pay it off. But the only way you can is, is, is like, can I, can, I, can I work for you? Can I pay off my debt? I, I am now enslaved to you as my master. Well, we were spiritually enslaved to our sin. And we had a debt we couldn't pay. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so we couldn't pay our debt. And Christ took on bodily form and took on the cross our death for us. And so in exchange, he didn't set us free to go sin and live licentiously. He said, now you are mine. Now you owe him a debt you are to serve him now he is a good glorious wonderful sovereignly glorious master and provides the path of greatest joy but he says you don't just live however you want now i've purchased you i've redeemed you your body is not free to be used however you want your body is mine i am for your body so glorify christ with your body you've been purchased he owns you he decides how you should live he decides how I should live. So when we pull all this together. We see we must view what we do through the lens of the gospel. God's changed everything in the gospel. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything because Christ has purchased me from that domination, from that enslavement. In Christ, I have all the power. In Christ, you have all the resources you need to be free from that type of rule in your life. He says, your body is for him, but he is for you. So all of us could sit here and just whimper out of here in a load of guilt, right? Jesus said, if you lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I don't think any one of us would pretend that we've never sinned in this category. But Paul, the gospel says, Christ has so united with you by faith. You are so united with Christ that even while you were sinning, God is saying, I see you as a saint. That's that's how profound that union is. That even while we are failing, God says, Jesus is saying, I'm covering this with my blood and the spirit takes that message of grace and says don't sit there and waller in your guilt but instead repent change that you have been fully equipped by grace that that should be so overwhelming and so amazing the grace should be so thrilling and so unbelievable that it empowers you to glorious worship of God with your body to say That's not pleasing to God. He calls me a saint, and I'm going to get up off my knees, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to live for his glory. So rather than sitting there and wallowing in your guilt and wallowing in your shame, God calls you to get up by his grace, by his strength, by his enablement, by his power, living in you, with you, and through you, to say, now go glorify me with your body. Take whatever steps you need, practical steps to provide guardrails to help you. Get in community. Get with a trusted friend. Share the struggle. Get in community and say, hey, I need you guys to pray for me. I need to be able to text you when I'm being tempted. I need you to text me when you're being tempted. We are in this together. We are not alone. We are a church family that knows that all of us are guilty except for the righteousness of Christ. And we can do this together. That's why the church is here. And so what steps do you need to take very practically? Who do you need to share your password with? Who do you need to hand your phone to? Who do you need to unload software, private eyes or secret eyes? What is it called? Covenant eyes. Put that software on your computer, covenant eyes. Look at Googe laughing at me. Private eyes, secret eyes. You can get covenant eyes. Put that on your software whatever it takes. The point's not to beat you over the head and make you feel terrible. The point is to empower you and equip you. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, I'm giving you the resources to fight this fight. Father God, I pray that you will help us fight this fight, that we will be faithful, that we will not embrace sinful desires, but that we will Fight those desires through the Spirit of God, with the help of the family of the church. Help us to fight these battles so that we can be a church that, that glorifies you in this place. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word that equips us, and that reminds us of gospel realities, that we are, our bodies will be resurrected, and that it will be for your glory. And that our union with you is so profound that it gives us the fuel to fight, but also the resources to fight. And that you have purchased us and you own our bodies. You, you, de- you declare what we should do with our bodies. Help us to take very practical steps to be faithful in the areas that you've talked about today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.